Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. In this edition, we're going to be speaking to Terry Oakley-Smith, who's the founder CEO of Diversity, and that's D-I-V-E-R-S-I with a hyphen, T. Terry is a diversity expert who has worked for many decades now on questions of justice, and in particularly diversity, inclusion, and in the frameworks we've been using explicitly globally more and more in the last couple of years, Terry, Terry has developed a toolkit of anti-racism practices and technologies that are really important to help transform organizations. This is also in part informed by her work as an academic, but beyond that, she's been a practitioner. And I've invited her to come and talk to us about racism and that's because racism doesn't go out of fashion. It doesn't take a break, even over the Christmas season, as we've seen here in South Africa, after that horrible incident that played out in Bloemfontein a couple of weeks ago. And it doesn't seem as if we get a respite from racism, and therefore racism should not get a respite from us in terms of tackling it. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Terry, good morning to you, and thank you so much for coming on UCBS on Times Live. It's a real pleasure. Good morning and Happy New Year to you, Eusebius. Thanks, Terry. I want to start personally. There are many concepts that are important to land if one were to facilitate workshops, as you do, on racism or other isms, oppression and moving companies, public institutions, public spaces, schools, universities, Um to more just spaces. But instead of explaining those concepts theoretically, I thought it may be interesting for so many people who are familiar with you and your work, which we are grateful for, to perhaps understand your own personal journey. Long before we have the language of diversity, racial justice, implicit bias, explicit racism, we already form beliefs and attitudes and behaviors from infancy, if not before then. Tell us a little bit about your own journey on the question around race. At what point did you become aware of your being a white, phenotypically you know, white person, and what that confers on you in terms of how you move through the world? Thanks, Eusebius. <clears throat> I think the most formative thing for me when I you talked about the issue of infancy is that I was born an identical twin. And indeed, the question that sort of 
followed both of us through through our lives was which is which and how do you tell the difference mm. and although i never decided to go into diversity work because of this i've been reflecting on it quite a lot recently and i feel sure that it must have had um something to do with wanting to understand you know which is which literally um which person is which person and then um, as a child my father was in the military and we i grew up literally moving every 3 years all over the world um we lived in the far east we lived in germany we lived in moscow but in none of these places through my own experience with my parents did i ever have any sense of the other we were not encouraged to mix with the locals um mm. they were never talked about it was never part of of my upbringing even though it should have been a most wonderful platform mm. uh, for getting to know other people it never actually was and it was only when i was in south Af- i came to south africa after i finished my my first degree and i taught in an african teachers training college in a really remote place outside richmond called ndaleni which was also um, an art college and i was asked to teach english mm-hmm. and i i became aware of how totally absurd it was they were expecting me to teach these black students who were learning about art and learning about english the sort of preposterous mm-hmm. english poems like the village blacksmith mm. you know that one under the spreading chestnut tree <laughs> the village smithy stands etc and i only then really began to to be honest with mm. you to be, be began to see the african students that i taught in this teachers training college as people like me but different from me and that was the first i suppose mm. kind of trigger mm. but then i must be really honest with you and say that i didn't um i wasn't friends with any of them i didn't have any sort of integrated um relationships with any of them even talk to them much outside of the mm. class and none of the other teachers who were all uh, especially in those days it was a while ago um white and mainly male also kind of gave me the message quite subtly mm. that it wasn't dumb in fact to try and build relationships with the students that's interesting terry because whiteness is normative in the same way in which being male is normative in a misogynistic world which is the world we live in i do not have to think about being embodied male as i move through the world because the world is structured in such a way that my gender expression which aligns with my sense of my own identity as a male is conferred all sorts of advantages i almost want to call them privileges but they shouldn't be privileges but they are advantages for sure whether i like it or not i can't opt out of the advantages that come with being male for example the assumption that i am a more natural candidate for leadership in the boardroom than yeah. you are 
That is an advantage conferred on me just because I have a penis. And it doesn't matter how woke I am in today's language, I can't opt out of male privilege. Now, you describe not having cross-racial friendship growing up, and even when you were teaching. That is interesting, but that is still one step removed from understanding advantage that you have when you walk through the shopping mall, when you try and book for a restaurant. Besides your self-awareness at that point, that you had little cross-racial contact, at what point does it dawn on you that as much as you are working hard, you might deserve a lot of things on your CV, that the world is structured in such a way that you are conferred all sorts of privileges? You know, I think it took me a long time, Eusebius. I think like many white people, you know, and there are still some that aren't even aware of their privilege. Um, I think mm. I think it's also to do with the the absence of having to deal with the kind of things that black people deal with every single day. I mean, now obviously my mm. world has changed a lot as I as I continue on this journey, and I can't say I'm there. I don't think you're ever there as a white person trying to understand issues of difference and as particularly differences of race. But um, I think it demands mm. really a lot of a lot of work. But I think that that whiteness is is really the absence of the kind of things that you, as a black man, would have to deal with every day. I mean, I don't think I have any um, black friends, and we we discuss this often, that don't have to deal with racism, whether in a microaggressive kind of way or whether in a more particular kind mm. of way, every single day of their lives. It's exhausting mm. being a black person, I think. Um, and as a white person, you don't have to deal with that. So I guess that's yeah. part of the privilege um, that one carries. If we divvy up the spectrum, or not even divvy it up, just talk about the spectrum. In the South African context, it is very interesting how the history of linguistic, cultural, economic, and most explicitly political tension between white Afrikaans South Africans and South Africans that are English speaking with a British typical sort of roots in their lineage. Those tensions are interesting because very often whites who self-identify as progressive, many of them are English speaking, imagine that your pervert racist is the gold standard of racism and that I am okay. And I have black friends now. I have black kids coming to birthday parties as my house, which didn't happen in the 90s and the 80s. And the person who sees themselves as white, progressive, and fundamentally decent, and who has a lot to say about what they might not like about Kali Krill, um, or about the racists at the Bloemfontein pool, for example. What do you say to them about racial privilege? Because many of them, would be upset in a workshop that you and I might co-facilitate if we were to make statements such as the following, all white South Africans have racial privilege because they imagine themselves to be profoundly self-aware, 
Some might even think that they have done a lot of good work chipping away at their own privilege and that the problem with the, the people with the real problem are the explicit racists. I think that's absolutely and fundamentally right. I think that, um, I mean, in, in my work, I do we do obviously touch on, and in fact, not just touch on, but go quite deeply into the notion of, of white privilege. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding mm. about it, of course. And there is that sense that somehow the British type English speaking people were not as racist as your African, mm. your Africana, which of course is, is not, is not true. I mean, each individual carries their own burden of racism. And, you know, I, I've come across many Afrikaans, white people who, who've worked really hard on, on becoming anti-racist and are, and are continuing on that journey. But you say, Bess, mm. what I find almost always when one brings up the topic of white privilege is two things come up. One is, I had to work hard to get where I am. These things didn't come easy. And, and, and the, and the mm. other thing is that, um, you know, my parents had to struggle and, and, and therefore, you know, there was no privilege. Privilege is regarded as rich, being rich. That, that a white white privilege goes hand in hand with having um, economic opportunities. That, of course, is true um, in South Africa still. I mean, the, the, the paltry 8% we make up as whites, um, we still have the, the economic privileges. But white privilege per se is not about money. It's not about how hard your life is or was. It's simply about the fact that, as you know, Eusebius, with a white skin comes privilege. If you and I are standing in a queue in the, in the pick and pay or in some small shop and we arrive exactly at the same time, I can promise you I'll be served first. If I go mm. to a hotel with my black colleague um, because we're staying somewhere to do a workshop and we approach the, the reception together, I will be the person that, that, that is turned to to ask, um, you know, what do we want? Who, what are we doing? Um, and I just think if, if we could understand white privilege as it really is, that absence of having to deal with all the things you deal with daily, then no white person can deny it. I think that is so absolutely spot on. Yeah, that is so spot on, Terry. And maybe we can flesh that out to make it practical with more everyday examples. I wrote in my first book, about the example of how a good university friend of mine had said to me once our friendship had deepened that he had to confess rhetorically. Um, he says to me that he thought, oh my God, I got the affirmative action tutor when I tutored him philosophy in his, in his first year. And the point of that example is that if you are white, you are assumed to be picked on merit deserving to be a teacher, a lecturer, a tutor, your bona fides are not doubted. And on top of that, if it should turn out that you are useless, contrary to the assumption of excellence, your uselessness is not taken to be a reflection of the entire group of which yes. you are a representative. For a black person, not only is there a presumption of incompetence, so you've got to work harder 
to overcome the stereotype staring back at you from your students. But on top of that, the entire group of which you are a member called Black people are put on trial in your performance. No, abs absolutely, Eusebius. I mean, I see that happening all the time. And especially, um, I've worked in a number of universities, and exactly that's exactly what happens. That the one, if a white person messes up, it's an individual problem. Mm. Oh, poor so and so, must something must have happened. Perhaps there were problems at home, and therefore he or she mm. did whatever. If a black person messes up, it's the entire race. It becomes these people. Um, so I, I, I agree with you absolutely. And then in the same way, I am never expected to be the representative of all white people. No. <laughs> um, whereas you, I'm sure, are mm. expected to be the to speak for black people. But it's also interesting how bad races are at logic while imagining themselves to be the epitome of rationality because they insist that talking in general terms about white people is irrational, that you've got to know my heart as Terry before you can know me yes. as Terry. And yet so many of them yes. have the audacity on the daily to think that the black skin is a reliable information carrying tray that they can know you just in virtue of your skin color. So they perpetuate the very bad reasoning that they hate when we talk about white people in generality. And yet that is what is done in respect of racialized black persons every single day. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I just imagine that it must be so exhausting to be a black person in South Africa, particularly still, yeah. and in the world, basically. Yeah. I mean, you're carrying all this, dealing with this, and and we as white people are largely oblivious. We don't even think of ourselves as being a race. Mm. When, when, I, when we talk about, um, sometimes if I'm facilitating a workshop and we're talking about race and I ask people about race, white people just don't think that they are a race. <laughs> It's as if whiteness is uh, confers something you mentioned earlier. It's the norm. The, it's legitimate. Mm. But being white isn't regarded as having a race. Mm. And I think that's profoundly problematic. And um, it should be really be a starting point for the kind of issues that we're talking about. I want to come back to that. To, yeah, I want to yes. come back to that. But I first want us to pause over what you said earlier, which any of us, who give keynotes, facilitate workshops, whether it's here, other parts of the global north, work that people like Robin D'Angelo do. It's amazing how we get similar patterns everywhere from South Africa to North America to Europe in how white people respond in workshops who regard themselves as progressive. Very often, we'll be told, you are probably going to speak to the converted who are fluent in the concepts that you want to trot out. And then you think, oh, my God, I better really step up here as Terry so that the firm can get value for money. If all these people are so progressive, what, what do I have to teach them? And yet they are very good at putting their family on trial, at colleagues on trial who are not in the workshop, 
but they're not very often self-reflexive. When you say, uh, yeah, when you say the hand will shoot up and someone will say, I've worked hard to be the GM, Terry, how dare you undermine that is the subtext. The story of me becoming the GM, a member of the board, a senior manager, is a story of sheer hard work, grit, and determination. What, do you, what are you trying to say to that person who sincerely believes that that is the essence of how they came to be at the top of the ladder? You know, depending on their age, but I mean, I would be interested to ask them, you know, is that is that really is that the only thing do you think that that helped you to get to 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 the top of the ladder? Is there anything else about you um, that you think may have played a part in this? Mm. Because white people are, are, are so reluctant to acknowledge um, that their race will a that there is a race, b that their race would have had something to do with it. Um, and I mean, it's, it's actually quite interesting, Eusebius, because now um, I hear white people saying all the time, oh, well, there's no hope for us. You know, there's this BEE. And, and so, you know, as a white person, I've got no opportunities. There are no jobs available for me. Yes. Um, which is utter nonsense if one looks at the uh, statistics on um, employment in South Africa. Mm. Um Graduates leaving universities who are white are far more likely to be employed than graduates who That's are right, black. That's right, absolutely. It's a huge pool of unemployed black graduates, but it's it's getting to people to to actually become conscious of race and of their race and of how that helps them to stand in the world. And in the case of this um, hypothetical CEO how that might have played um, that and his gender, most probably, um, yeah. helped to play a part in getting him to where he is. We're not going to talk about what is in a toolkit and the experiential learning that one does. People can find the link in the blurb to this podcast to your company. They can reach out to me or to you on social media and we can take it forward. It's too too much to handle in one conversation. We're really just here beginning what might be, I don't know, five to ten conversations over the course of the year if we are able to, to turn it into that. Um, so we're not going to be forward looking about how do you begin to chip away at that. But I've got two or three final questions in terms of just making sense of the phenomenon of racialized privilege and its reality and the denialism that goes with it. I think part of the problem, which with your academic background, you have a better grip on than me, part of the problem is a psychosocial problem. People have motivated beliefs and they are motivated to keep on to beliefs at the center of their belief set that are beliefs which they cherish at an emotional level. One of those beliefs, or a cluster of them, Terry, are beliefs that I am fundamentally decent rather than fundamentally messy, or even a little bit messy, or hell of a messy. And when you come along and a facilitator doing anti-racism work tells you, hey, buddy, let me tell you ways in which externalities positively allowed you to get to where you are. It upsets beliefs that are really central to people's 
narratives they've told themselves and internalized about themselves and their families. That's a hell of a lot to overcome, isn't it? To get them to see the more complicated truth of how effort interacts with luck. You know, I think it's also about how one does it, you say this. Um, I think this is not something um, that one would go into guns, all guns blazing, if I can put it like that. Mm. But it's helped people to understand for themselves. Um, you know, issues of narrative are very helpful in this regard. Um, asking a black person in the same in the same workshop to, to talk about their experience, how they got to where they are, which may not be, which probably almost certainly isn't the CEO, um, and comparing that narrative with the narrative um, mm. coming from the CEO and how hard he worked and, you know, all mm. of that. So sometimes comparing narratives is, is very helpful in that regard. Mm. But what you say about motivated beliefs, this work is very difficult, Eusebius. You would know that. Um, it has to be done with, with, with sensitivity, mm. but it also has to be done with clarity. You can't tiptoe around it. Yeah. Um, you have to actually get to the issues. Otherwise, you're not doing anyone any favors. And I think I've been doing this work. I've just worked out for 30 years now. <laughs> and we're still dealing with many of the same issues mm. um, that I started working with back in 1993. Mm. And what you say about... Um, having to shake the tree of those motivated beliefs, I think mm. is, is very important. Mm. And sometimes it's better not for the facilitator to shake the tree, but to encourage other people in the room to do the tree shaking. Mm. Mm. So after you've heard of what a wonderful person this is, how hard they've worked, how poor their parents were, and they've still become the CEO, to ask a black person in the room, you know, what do you feel about this? Do you think anything else might have had something to do with it? You know often what's also interesting, Terry, is that the, the narratives don't have to be false. What I often find is when someone gives an account of how they came to be who they are and how the things on their CV came to be on their CV, it is very rare that they lie. More often than not, it's rather that the story is incomplete. That's exactly it. You say this, you've hit the nail on the head. It's what we leave out. What we as white people leave out is almost always the key thing that we need to be looking at. Mm. And that's, I think, one of the ways that one um, needs to approach issues like white privilege. Yeah. What are we not saying? Mm. Second last issue is maybe a biggie, but let's flag it at least for a full-fledged future conversation. You've mentioned it several times. I, I despair at the question around race realism. Race is obviously biologically an unstable concept at best and at worst biological nonsense. It's amazing how people take that truth as a basis for denying racism and whiteness. They even piggyback on left-wing black thinkers and scholars and activists who also sometimes draw attention to race being biological nonsense. And then they misappropriate left-wing thinkers to further entrench their own color blindedness. 
How do you explain that conundrum to people? Because you clearly would also accept that race is a biological nonsense and a social construction. But it yes. doesn't follow from that that race talk and racism are bullshit. Exactly. I think just just as you have, I mean, I think it's it's very important to to break down that belief that you know race is a biological issue, um, to agree that it's um, a social construct, um, and then to look at it, you know, exactly as you are to ask the questions. But does that mean that there is no racism? Mm. Um, and I think you know, asking the question, getting the examples. Um, is the important thing listening to what what people have to say, mm. and and just to reiterate, I, I I always find it's very helpful to to get people to learn from one another, from their colleagues, from the other people in the place in the workshop, um, rather than necessarily from me. I don't want to stand there as an expert spouting all the necessary information, but rather be a kind of conduit through which people can converse with each other, listen to each other, and learn from each other. Because Eusebius, I'm sure you also find that you learn so much. Mm. I mean, this journey is profound, and it's lifelong. Mm. Um, and I don't think I've ever facilitated a workshop where I haven't learned something from somebody who's different from me. I think that's very important, which is leads me to the final bit that I want us to meditate on. It's very important. None of us are finished product. And that's maybe another important way of creating a safety container. If you are new to this work as a facilitator, you have to create a safety container, as, as Terry alluded to earlier, when she said you don't always go in guns blazing, even though you must have clarity. I love that balance. Um, and the idea of a safety container is one that a cousin of mine introduced to me, and I, and I really like that concept. Um, and I think that's important because one of the things you can do by way of setting it up is to be self-reflexive, even as, an, a, as a facilitator. As a Black person, I have to deal with internalized oppression, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, also, one of the legacies of coloniality is the way in which racialized minorities other each other, even when there are no Caucasian persons in the space that we occupy. And equally, just because Terry has done this for 30 years, has got a very color-perfect melting pot of relatives um, in her life and in her family, doesn't mean that there isn't ongoing work to be done. Just speak into that, Terry, because I think sometimes people think, unless I'm perfectly virtuous, I'd better shut up because someone is going to have a receipt of me having had an off moment yesterday. Listen, I have off moments almost every day, you say this. <laughs> and I really do. I mean, and I think um, whether you are married to a, a person of another race, whether you've adopted a child of another race, you are, you are still, I am still as a white person privileged. And I think, I find it sometimes much more difficult to, I, I started a workshop once and the person said, well, I'm married to an Indian woman, so I'm not racist. This is a white person. <laughs> you think, oh wow. my God, we have to start right at the bottom. I think... <laughs> 
you know, who who your immediate family are does not have the power to make you anti-racist. No. It can help you to understand, um, but the work you need to do is your work. I, as a white person, can't rely on you saviors to teach me about anti-racism. It's mm. very hard work, but I've got to do it myself. I've got to do the reading. I've got to do the, the listening to the podcasts. I've got to do the watching the videos. I can't rely on Eusebius to do it. And mm. I think that would be my most important message in this brief conversation, Eusebius, is mm. that for us as white people, and we, and I always use the term we, I'm a white person. I might have been doing this work for 30 years, but I've still got lots of work to do. I'm not mm. there by any means. Mm. So um, I think let's agree that we need to do the work. Um, we need to do hard work and we can't rely on, on Eusebius or, or anyone to do that work for us. It comes back to us. Absolutely. And that's why I love the term anti-racism because it's an active call for you to take a position which is verb, it is doing, it is not simply being non-racist non-racial. Yes. Those terms are not inherently problematic, but anti-racism is the most energetic way of being a sort of call to arms against racism. And that's mm -hmm. why I love the fact that you have referred to anti-racism so much in this conversation. Terry, I love the work that you do. How can people get hold of you or, or check out your website? I haven't been there in ages because I've got direct access to you. I assume it's still yes. active. Yes, it's still www.diversity, as you so well put it in the beginning, Eusebius.co.za. And I have um, a Twitter handle at Diversitary. And um, I'm on Facebook, um, Terry Oakley Smith. And um, I'm afraid I'm not very good with LinkedIn, Eusebius. Maybe. I don't, I'm not a LinkedIn at all. And I don't no. feel that I'm start on anything. <laughs> No, so that's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, Terry, thanks so much. I think this has been wonderfully useful. Often being in this work, things that we regard as trite can be enormously emotionally tense, piercing, unsettling for others. And so I've no doubt many people will find this productive and perhaps even productively difficult. It is, I don't think learning can happen when we are too comfortable, nor too uncomfortable. And it's that weird sweet spot of comfortable mm -hmm. discomfort that is important. Thanks so much for coming on. A great pleasure. Thank you, Eusebius, for inviting me.